been a couple a couple months back. I think I told you about when Wendy and I first got married. Um, of course, none of you are going to relate to this because I know how it is. When you first got married, you were given a mansion, right? So you live in a huge home. But when we first got married, um, we lived in a little duplex. I think it was like seven, eight hundred square feet. So basically, our tour of our house would be, hey, it's so good to have you here. Stand in the middle and turn around, right? So we'd be like, there's the bathroom, and there's the kitchen, there's the den, there's the, huh, there's the bedroom, fun room. There's the other, like, the room that we put all the stuff in and close the door and, like, never open the door, right? So I don't, yours is probably a mansion, but that was ours. And so um, when you're a newlywed, you know, you ever, who's lived in a duplex? Anybody duplex living? Huh. It's all about the neighbor, isn't it? Like, if you've got a good neighbor, duplex living is bearable, but if you've got a bad neighbor, duplex living is horrible, right? So, um, anyway, we're the second group. I mean, we were the, we were the good neighbors, right? So, um, we, I decided one day, I'm going to surprise Wendy. She works, she, like, we we're both in, sem- and she, I'm in seminary, she's in graduate school, we're both working, it's crazy time. So, um, one day, like, I got, I was a good husband, I packed her bag, right? I put it in the trunk of the car, and I picked her up at work, and I was like, Let's go. And she said, where? And I said, I got a surprise, baby. And I had, because I'm, I'm that guy, right? I had booked us a night at the Shoney Inn. <laughs> Look, you laugh all you want, but when you book a night at the Shoney Inn, you also get free breakfast. And how many know bacon at Shoney's? Hello, come on. Like the best artery clogging stuff you'll ever put in your mouth. Am I right? I mean, it's like crunchy and it's curled up. And like, then you get the fatty stuff and it's just like... Let's just pray now, right? Let's just pray and go home, right? Um, so, so I arrive, and I'm feeling so good. Like, we're not going to be in the duplex. We're going to be in, in the hotel room, and, and, and it's, like, it's going to be fantastic. I walk in. I tell them I'm there. They ask to see my ID, so I whip out my, and I give them my license. And the lady working there, she just looks at it, and she goes, oh, like, you live in Columbia. And I did. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I live in Columbia. Well, we, we, can't, we can't rent you this room. Okay, lady, don't, don't say that, right? No, no, no. You understand, like, my wife's in the car. I'm getting, I'm getting husband points, like, the whole deal. Um, like, why, what, why can't, what, what? Well, you live in Columbia, and we don't rent to people from Columbia because, like, prom season. And, you know, like, you ever had those conversations where they keep saying stuff, but it's not connecting for you? I'm like, okay, you're giving me more information, but none of it's making sense. What does that have to do with anything? And she said, well, the, the prom, prom season comes, high school students rent our hotel rooms, and they trash them. So we don't rent to people within a 100-mile radius of Columbia. And so we, we can't rent this room to you. It just boggled my mind, right? Maybe that's not exactly happened to you, but I can guarantee you there have been times in your lives when you went somewhere and you were anticipating what was going to be a fantastic night and you saw this sign. (laughs) Sorry, we're closed. Wendy's favorite ice cream is Hershey's ice cream. Like, not soft serve, like Hershey's. Like, you know, when they have to, like work out to scoop it out and put it on the cone. So um, there's a place up in Richfield, and it, they sell Hershey's ice cream, Cappuccino Crunch, right? That's her flavor right there. Um, and if you've never tried Cappuccino Crunch, I just introduced you to crack on a cone. You need to go try that, right? It's fantastic. You'll never stop eating it. She, one day we're like, let's go get some ice cream. So we, we drive up there, and it's a big event, right? We get up there and find out the only day of the week that they're closed it was the day that we went. When I first moved here, I moved back here. I grew up here, and I was gone for 10 years. When I first moved back here, uh, log cabin, hello, North Carolina Barbecue. Can you you feel me, right? 
holy cow. I'm like calling all these people like, we need to meet. We need to network. Where do you want to eat? Dude, log cabin. And pulled up on a Monday. Okay, see, you've been there too on a Monday when they don't open. Right. So you see this sign. Like, listen, here's the deal. At this point, let's, let's just let's make it just one more, one more illustration just to make sure you get it. If you're a minivan owner, and you're not going to raise your hand because nobody likes to admit that. If you're a minivan owner, it means you've got kids, right? You've got small kids because, like, no, no man, single man's driving a minivan, right? I'm just pimping the van, dude. What's up, right? You're not doing that. You're, you're driving a minivan because you have to. Like, what, the day that we traded in our car, and it was not a nice car, but it was a car for the minivan. We're test driving it out at Lums, and the person that's driving us around says, what are you thinking? I said, I hate it. He's like, is there something else I can show you? If it's a minivan, I'm going to hate every one of them, right? It was like the day that I died. But we could fit stuff in, and that was great. So if you've got kids, and you've got a minivan, you load the minivan up. You tell them that you're going somewhere to do something fun. And so all the way there, it is like electric in the van. Until you pull up and see that sign. And you have to tell your kids why you can't break in and do it anyway. And excitement goes to weeping and gnashing of teeth in the minivan. Am I right? Like your kids are like ripping their clothes, sackcloth and ashes. It's terrible. The only thing worse than sorry we're closed is if your establishment is so bad, you have to put this sign up. I don't know if you've been places like that, but I've been to places like, dude, you should close now, right? The deal is like there's no nice way to say we're closed. Um, you know, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Yeah, don't say you're sorry to be closed. I know how it is. Some of you are, some of you are business owners. Some of you are managers at stores for people that own the store. And you're like looking at the clock. Like, I know we're supposed to be open until 8 o'clock. I used to lifeguard at the Y. Worst 30 minutes of your life is a Friday night family swim at 730. And no one's in the pool. You can't close. You want to, Right? There was a night that I, I was sitting in the lifeguard chair. This will not make you feel good about lifeguards, but I'm sitting in the lifeguard chair. And you, back then you had to, like, get a, a, a number tag and, like, give it to the lifeguard so that they would know that you were there or whatever. And I woke up to, there's a man in, next to the lifeguard chair, like, waking me up to give me his number so he can swim in the pool. Like, how safe are you feeling now, big guy, right? It's crazy. Sometimes we like to close early. We like to get out because, hey, you're, you're not sorry you're closed. You're glad you're out early so you can go on vacation. But when you drive up and see that sign, worst feeling in the world. So let's bring that into the church, okay, just for a moment. There's a generation growing up, ages 16 to 29. And Barna, who's a really smart guy, started a group that asked people questions, and they take all the answers and put them all together and tell you how you should know this because it makes you smarter, right? One of those guys, they ask all these people, 16 to 29, describe the church in one word. Take one word, the first word that comes to your mind, and say it. And what, how would you describe church and Christianity? And here is the answer. For 91% of kids, 91% of 16 to 29-year-olds that do not attend church, that's 9 out of 10 people in the arm of the 10th. You got me? 91% said, first word, anti-homosexual. Now, I'm not going to preach on that until the fall. You'll want to come back for that. But I'm not preaching on it today. But it's not just a non-church deal. Like, we want to go, well, that's just like the, the lost heathen people. No, man, in the church, 
16 to 29-year-olds that come to church on a regular basis, 80% of those people said anti-homosexual. And then like the second, third, and fourth words, they didn't get any better. They were words like judgmental, hypocritical, not that you've ever used that, and too involved in politics. Sum all those words up in one word, closed. So the entire world is coming to the church for the message that only we can give them, and they're seeing a, sorry, we're closed sign. You, you with me? I want you to know this morning that Easter blows that up. Easter takes what the world looks at the church and you're closed. God says, no, 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 no. Man, I'm open. Let me talk to you for a minute just about the God, the best opener you'll ever meet. How many of you are concert people? Raise your hands. You go to concerts. I didn't ask if they were good concerts, bad concerts, you know, Christian, country, Western, whatever, right? You go to concerts, and, and you, you just love it. You're, like, you're into it. You're, you're singing the songs with them. Even if you can't sing, you've been to those concerts, like really good concerts. So what does the opening act do? The opening act is when the famous people, <laughs> the famous band, turns to some nobody and says, hey, we'd love for you to go on tour with us. We want you to be our opening act. Oh, that'd be great. What do I get to do? Well, basically what we want you to do is this. We want you to go out in front of a crowd that's not going to listen to you and play your best stuff and nobody's going to remember you. Just kind of get them warmed up for us. And oh, and by, we'll also let you have like in the back corner, in the back corner closet of the convention center, we'll let you set up your merchandise and sell it. And that's, that's typically how opening acts work. Every now and then. Have you ever been to a concert where the opening act stole the show? I used to do concerts all the time because I was a youth pastor. I had a group of kids go to a concert one time. I didn't get to go with them. They came back, and I'm like, so how was the concert? You know, like, it was, man, it was fantastic. Four or five bands played. Um, I don't remember any of them. I, I, I can't remember who the headline band was, but it was this first band. Like, the first band that played is, like, a bunch of redneck guys, and they just started playing, and it was fantastic. And, like, those guys are going somewhere. So, well, like, who, who are they? I, I, their name, um, some weird name, like, need to breathe yeah, yeah they went somewhere right they, they stole the show like that's all they could remember they could remember the headline they could remember the people that they paid the ticket to see they just remember this first band I love it when the opening act steals the show what I want you to know about God is this God does just that he steals the show like his opening act stole the show you got, you got to picture this, okay? We're talking about Easter. We're talking about the crucifixion and then the resurrection. So you're going to a concert, right? And the headline band is like this thrash band, metal band called Gloom and Doom. And you're like, yeah, we all stink, man. We're sinners. We're going to hell. We don't have any hope. Still, let's bang our heads around. Little guitar. And there's some dude named Jesus plays opening act. And he steps out of a tomb onto that stage. And I want you to understand this morning, that opening act changes everything. People don't walk home talking about the thrash metal band. They walk home talking about, there was this, this dude named Jesus. I don't even know if he sang. But he did something when he walked out of that tomb that like riveted me. And I can't think about anything else. His opening act steals the show. 1 Corinthians 15, listen to how important this is. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 
13. I'll just, if you got a Bible, turn it. If you don't, I'll read it to you in a translation that you can actually understand. It'll be great. Paul's writing about the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what he says, starting in verse 13. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, verse 15, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Listen to verse 17. And if, you're Christ, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's how big a deal the resurrection is. Like it's just not a Sunday when pastors get up and just preach to make themselves feel good and sound good. Like, this is the day. You, you understand? Like, this is, if there was a hinge in history, this is the hinge. Like, everything changed. Like, death to life. That Paul, the, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, could actually stand right this. Like, if he did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Listen to verse 19. If you're here and you're like not even into Jesus and somebody just like bribed you to come, this is your verse. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Some of you that are here, and listen, I don't make this, I'm saying this to make you feel good, right? You're here because you don't love Jesus. You don't really like church. But somebody told you if you came, like they would give you like a really good meal. They would, they would hide the special egg just for you. The ones that you can crack open and have candy inside, but yours is going to have bacon, right? You're like, the Baconator egg, yeah, I'm coming to church for that, right? But see, why don't you come to church? Because the church is sorry we're closed, right? Because you're one of those people that say, when I think about the church, I think about all the things that they're against instead of all the things that they should be for. The church doesn't feel open to me. It feels closed. And so that's why you don't come. And so you would read that verse and go, dude, that verse, that's so true. I don't even read the Bible. But that thing about pity, you're right, because I have met so many pitiful Christians. I've met so many pitiful churchgoers. Like, they just sit in church. They're miserable. They don't even smile. Like, they get together and talk about things that should make them happy, and they never even look happy. Like, they look constipated. Pitiful. Wendy worked with a doctor one time, and he said this to her, like, I don't want to be a Christian. It's like, why not? He goes, because the only difference between me and Christians is that I get to keep all my money and I have to give some to the church. That's like, if you could summarize Christianity, that's what he would say. Like, well, you waste an hour of your life in church at this church a little more than an hour. Hopefully not wasted. <laughs> but you're in church an hour a week and you're giving some of your money away. And he's like, I'll keep my hour and I'll keep my money because I don't see any difference between me and the people that do that. Pitiful is the word that we would use to describe that existence, correct? I mean, is that why we don't, we don't do church? I don't want to waste my time. It doesn't work. And Paul's saying, like, he's saying, I agree with you. If all we have is, is hope in Christ, but he's not actually risen, we are to be pitied more than all men. But look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, what in the world does that mean? It sounds so churchy, doesn't it? Well, one, it means this. I can stand on this platform today and tell you with all the confidence in the world that nobody made up the resurrection. Like Jesus rose from the dead. 
You ever lost something really important? You ever hunted, trying to find it? Like when it's really important, when it really matters, don't you look everywhere for it? Man, when, when Jesus died and was put in that tomb, and he had people who were against him, against the disciples, and all they had to do, all they had to do to stop that whole thing was just find the body, right? Just find the body. I mean, don't you know that people in that time were turning over every stone? They were looking in every grave, just find the body, and we can stop this thing. And they couldn't find the body. Why, why couldn't they find the body? Because there wasn't one to find. When I was a youth pastor, I'm on a mission trip to Guatemala. <laughs> the night before, we're leaving to come back to the States. One of our guys, his name was Jeremy, like this tall, this wide, high school wrestler, just fantastic guy. He comes down, his face is like white as a, like a ghost. I'm like, dude, what is wrong? He goes, I can't find my passport. And I'm like a youth pastor thinking like, what do I say to Jeremy to make him feel better? My pastor's on the trip and he's like, guess you're staying in Guatemala, dude. So, uh, J- Jeremy, you've got to find that passport. So what did he do? He went back up in his room. He tore that thing up. <laughs> He's the reason why I can't rent in Columbia now, right? I mean, Guatemala now, right? So he tore that room up. He came back down, and he was like, he had, he had a passport. He found it. It was in his book bag. He just had missed it. But he, like, tore that, turned it upside down. That's the way they looked for the body of Jesus back in the day. They couldn't find it because there wasn't a body to find so Paul says, 1 Corinthians, he says, but indeed Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruits. So what in the world does first fruits mean? It just means he went first. That's a really like religious term for it. Jesus went first. So when Jesus came out and he rose from the dead, it means this, that now we also are going to rise from the dead. It means that we can have life because he defeated death. He stepped onto that stage. He was the opening act, and he was so amazing that it changed everything we'd ever want to do. Here's some of the things, some of the things that are open to us now just because Jesus rose from the dead. Open eyes. He's opened our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.4, whether you know this or not, it's, it's in the Bible, it's true, says this, that our eyes are blinded by the God of this world. The God of this world is not Obama, okay? Satan, right? Some of you are like, wait, isn't that the same thing? <laughs> Don't go there. Oh, no. <clears throat> Let's just move on. Your eyes are blinded. You ever talk to somebody, you're trying to tell them the truth, it's like it's so clear to you, and they're just like, what? That's the world. That's what we're like apart from Christ. Our eyes are blinded. But then we find this in, in Psalm 119, verse 18. David wrote this, God, open my eyes to see. You see what I'm saying? Like Jesus opens our eyes to see. We can't see before that, but because he's opened the tomb, because he stepped out, because he's victorious now, our eyes can be open. God's hand is open. Psalm 145, 16. Um, if you could draw a picture of God, most people would draw this picture. Right? Like, he's so mad at me. It's like, he's got lightning. He's just going to kill me, destroy me. Man, No. The picture that comes after the resurrection is this picture. I mean, his hand is open to you. Our minds are open. Some of us. Luke 24, 45 says that because of Christ, our minds are now open to the truth, right? I mean, all the people that say that church people are closed-minded, the Bible don't want you to be closed-minded. The Bible wants us to be open to the truth, to see the truth. Uh, new roads. How many of you have ever like prayed to God, 
God, where I am is so bad, please just give me a new place to go. And the Bible says this. He does that. Isaiah 43, verses 18 19. He, he provides streams in the desert, rivers in the wasteland. He makes a new way for us. He makes a new path for us. Man, if you're here this morning, you're in a bad place, that's good news for you. And none of that happens if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But because he did, because he opened the grave, there are open roads in front of you. He opens closed doors, Revelation 3, 8, Matthew 7, 7. He opens closed doors. I love it in Revelation 3, 8, he says this, actually, what, what the door that God opens, no man can shut. How awesome is that? Um, this one will not apply to the person sitting next to you. Hard hearts. <laughs> Have you met my spouse? You're preaching right to them, right? Hard hearts. Acts 16, 14. Ephesians 1, 18. Man, I love that God opens hard hearts. And then prison cells. Um, I'm not going to ask if you've been in an actual prison, but I can guarantee you that if you're sitting here today, a lot of you are in prison. You're, you're in a relationship that feels like prison. You're in a job that feels like prison. You're in an addiction that feels like prison. You're around people that feel like they've got you in prison. Man, you're in prison. And you're sitting here going, what do I do? Do I have any hope at all? In Acts 5, 19, Acts 16, 26, two fantastic stories in the Bible about how people were in prison and God busted them out by opening the doors. Acts 5.19 actually talks about this, that the apostles were put in prison because they'd been preaching too much. And so an angel showed up and opened the doors and said, go preach some more. I love that. Like, don't run away. Just go back out in the middle of the square and keep preaching. And they're like, are you sure? Because, like, they arrest us. He's like, um, dude, like, I just busted you out, right? Sometimes you feel like a chihuahua, right? When does a chihuahua feel strong? Sitting on the back of a St. Bernard or a pit bull, right? That's when Chihuahuas get like, dude, you're like a rat. What are you doing? You ain't going to mess with me. I'm sitting on this big dog, right? And how would your life look if you knew everywhere you went, like you had this huge angel next to you, like my angel's got me, right? That's what happened for the apostles. Thrown in jail. Everything seems closed. The angel shows up and says, open. Now get out there and do what you're supposed to do. I love that. love that. All that because of Calvary. And it begs this, this question, and we're going to wrap this up. Here's where we have to get a little bit honest. It begs the question, if all these things are open to me, Paul, like if I could sit down with you, you're the pastor, and I know you're talking like one to all of us now, but if I could just sit down one-on-one -on -one with you, and we could talk, and nobody could hear us, just me and you, and maybe God would listen to but if we could just talk, and I could ask you a question, could I ask you this question? Why is it that you're talking about all these things that are open because of the, because of the cross and because of the tomb? But I feel like in my life, nothing's open. You ever felt that way? You ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. You're in this service. You're like, dude, I don't get it. Like, I mean, everybody's singing these songs. Like, I'm standing next to people that can't even sing well, and they're just yelling it out. Like, everybody seems to feel this open thing that God's done, but I don't feel nothing. I feel like everything is closed. No options in my life. Why? If you could ask me that question, here's what I would tell you. I love the way God writes the Bible. I love that in the Bible, God includes people. Have you ever read the Bible and thought, how did they get in there? Like, they're idiots. Ever do that? I do it all the time. You just read and go, how did Peter get such a big role in the Bible? 
what a hothead, right? And just read about these people, and you're like, what a character. And God put them in the story. And why did God put them in the story? So we can relate, right? So here's what I want you to know. There, there's a couple of yahoos in the Bible that we can learn a lot from. They, 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 had, they were center stage to the greatest act in history. And they felt exactly like some of you feel today. They are, the Bible talks about there were three crosses. And if you grew up in church, you've seen this on like flannel graph or, you know, pictures. But if you weren't in church ever, you've seen pictures like, why are there always three crosses? Are there three Jesuses? No, there's Jesus in the middle, right? And then you got a thief on this side and a thief on this side. And the Bible says that they had actually been like doing stuff together. They were convicted of insurrection and of murder. And so here's these two thieves. Let's picture this. They are next to the greatest act this world has ever known. As Jesus is dying to go into the tomb to bust the door open and open everything to us, their lives are closing. You ever been there? That's where they are. Well, what can we learn from, from these guys? Maybe, maybe that's what your life is like today. Maybe you're, you're seeing more closings and endings while everybody else is rejoicing openings and beginnings. What I want you to know is this, man. They, these guys, they can relate to you. You, you, can, you can look at them and understand. You can identify with them. I can't look at Jesus and identify with Jesus, but I can look at these thieves. I, I get that. I relate to that. Idiot, Yahoo, messed my whole life up, and here I am. And, and, and what I want you to know is this. God recorded their story in Luke chapter 23 just for you. He put it in there just so you would know that he understands what it feels like to feel like everything's closed to you while everybody else is celebrating what's open. I want us to watch their story, and then I'll come back up and we'll close. I don't know what's worse, blatantly and openly doing wrong or covering up our wrongdoings with religion. It's not a far stretch for me to relate with the two criminals that we are introduced to in Luke 23. One of the criminals speaks. He says this. He says, aren't you God? Save yourself and save us. Essentially, what this criminal hanging on a cross says to Jesus is, are you God? Aren't you, do you claim to be God? Prove it. Convince me. Win me over. This is what we do with God. Hey, if you're God, then, then, then prove it to me. If you're God, then why, why am I going through so much trouble? Maybe you blame God for the pain, and maybe you blame God for the hurt in your life. This is the age-old question. People have been asking it since the beginning of time, and this thief, just because he's a criminal, he's no different than this. He says, aren't you God? Prove it to me. Almost to say, almost like, aren't you God? Then why is this happening? Why are we hanging on a cross? Why are we? And this is the question that people have been asking for years. If there's a good God, then why do bad things happen? Aren't you God? Then save me. As if God owes me. As if God owes me. Quite honestly, what, what have I ever done? to merit God owing me anything. Aren't you really good? If you're good, prove it. I love that Jesus doesn't respond to this man. 
If Jesus were to say something, maybe he would have said, that's what I'm doing, genius. <laughs> maybe not the sarcasm that I have, but yeah. it's exactly what I'm doing is, is saving you. Then the other criminal speaks up. He says, he says, are you crazy? You're hanging on the same cross. And then he says this phrase, and we are getting what we deserve. These criminals in Luke 23, they are getting what they deserve. They deserve to die for their deeds. As far as we know, they've never once professed God. They've never once lived right. They've never once tried to make amends. They've never once shown any sign of faith or good to community or neighbors or the church or anyone. They're thieves. All they've done is take and hurt and lie and deceive. And make no mistake, they are getting what they deserve. And one of them is just now realizing it. To have the realization that you deserve all the bad that is coming your way. I deserve this. I'm actually getting like, this is just. It's just that I lose my marriage. It's just that I pay the price. It's just. I deserved it. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's, it's like a question, isn't it? Like, like, would you? Could you? Could you even remember me? There's no specifics. He doesn't ask for a time frame. I mean, this is a dire moment, but he's not, no pressure, Jesus. He doesn't ask for a guarantee. It's, it's not like he's bargaining with Jesus because he's, he's in a hopeless place. He realizes, I don't have anything to give. Like, I, I have nothing to bargain with. This is simply a feeble plea from a desperate man who's just realized that everything he's getting, he deserves it. And he looks to God and he says, would you just remember me? If you could. Have you ever felt that way with God? Have you ever felt like you couldn't pray? Shouldn't be in church? And Jesus' response, oh, it's the most powerful, it's the most powerful statement in the scripture. From the cross, a place of total defeat. Everyone else is like, this man is moments from death, but he's not. He's moments from completing the greatest act sacrifices ever taken place you say how do bad things turn to good i don't know maybe the death of god the worst thing in history resulting in the greatest thing in history here's jesus from the point of total loss turns to this this malefactor he says today not not when you work things out not when you go to church a few times, not when you get in a city group, or once you've read your Bible, or you can quote you know, Psalms 23, or you've asked everyone to forgive you. Or Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Just as we're closing, I'm going to ask you this. To close your eyes. And, and 
I want to be clear. I want you to close your eyes so that you, you have some margin with God, okay? I know that can be difficult. We're in, a, we're in a combined service. I know there's kids here, and, you know, you might have a child on your lap right now. I get that. Um, love that. But right now, just as much as possible, if you could just close your eyes and just give you and you some margin with God as we just kind of bring this to a close. What I want you to understand is this, that there are times when everybody celebrates what's open and all that you can see is what's closing. And that's not weird. That's just called being human. There are times that that happens. And, and I want you to identify with these two thieves on the, on the crosses next to Jesus. And I want to ask you this question. Today, which thief will you be? Which thief will you be? It seems impossible that God could love us so much that he would endure so much just to win us over, doesn't it? But your big idea today, what I want you to go home remembering is this, an open tomb closes the door on impossible. God said, there is nothing impossible to me. Like if I can raise Jesus from the dead, if he can be the opening act and he can step out on that stage and he can become like I steal the show, if my opening act can steal the show, there's nothing in your life that I can't take care of. There's no door closed in your life that I can't blow up and set you free from. An open tomb closes the door on impossible. And and now the only question for you in this moment is this. Will you open your life to God so he can open everything else? Revelation 3.20 is a weird verse in the Bible. It talks about like Jesus standing at the door of your heart. And you're like, what's the door? Do I have a door in my heart? It's so weird. But basically it's like he stands at the door and he's knocking, right? He's knocking and he wants to come in. And he's talking to us. And here's, if Jesus showed up in our service right now, if he walked through those doors and stood right here and could look you in the eye and say anything to you, here's what he would say. Hey, I'm here. I want to be with you. I want to love you. I want to walk with you. I want to open every door for you. But first, you've got to open a door too. Let me in to your life, to your dirty, messy, far from perfect life. And if you'll do that, I will come in and we will open the door to the rest of your life, to the best of your life. That is what Jesus says to you today. My question is this. Will you? Will you? Not to be weird or spooky or magic. There's nothing magic about counting to three. I just don't want you to be caught off guard. I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to count to three just so you know it's coming. And when I say three, I'm just going to ask you to do one thing. Just put your hand in the air and say, that's me. Like maybe it's for the first time. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've been around Christianity, but now you're, you're a thief on the cross and you're like, this Jesus, I got to have this Jesus. Maybe you thought you were following Jesus, but somewhere along the way, man, you've gotten sidetracked. And today you're realizing again, this Jesus you're talking about, Paul, I, I need to know this Jesus. I'm not worried if it's the first time or the thousandth time. I'm just asking the question in this moment right now, Do you need 
to put your hand up and say, remember me. One. Two, just in, just in the margin, just in the margin, right? Just you and God. Would you respond? Three, just put your hand up if that's you. Just put your hand up. Yes. Thank you. Just keep your hand up all over the room. Thank you. It's amazing how God just arrests us, isn't it? It's amazing how God just moves in us and arrests us. This extravagant love of Jesus from the cross. This amazing power of God to blow open a tomb. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you. Eyes are still closed. A lot of hands went up all across the room. And I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. You can relax. But at the gathering, we believe this strongly. We believe that no one's supposed to walk alone. That the worst place to be is responding to God and having no one respond with you. And so I'm going to ask you in just a moment. And you're going to, like, I don't want to do that. Do it, okay? I'm going to ask you, if, if you raise your hand, you will not be alone. There were tons of hands all over the room. I'm just going to ask you, if you raise your hand, to stand where you are. Okay, just to stand where you are. People's eyes are closed. It's just you and God. I'm not even looking. Go ahead and stand where you are. Just stay there at your seat. Just stand. You got a kid? That's cool. Just stand up. Hold your child. It's no big deal. Go ahead and stand. It's all good. It takes a lot of courage. Come on, don't miss out on that. If you raise your hand, you go ahead and stand. We're not going to ask anything from you, okay? The reason why we're asking you to stand is because in just a moment, here's what's going to happen. You're going to feel a hand on your shoulder. It's not somebody coming to steal your money, right? It's just somebody coming to stand next to you while you make the biggest decision of your life. Okay? One more opportunity just to stand. If you raise your hand, just stand real quick. And in just a moment, people are going to come and they're going to stand next to you. We're just going to pray for you. You're not going to have to do anything. Gathering folk, here's what I want you to do. If you're near somebody that's standing right now, I just want you to go put your hand on their shoulder, okay? We're just going to stand with them. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray. You don't get to pray out loud. I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to seal this deal right now, okay? And then we're going to wrap the whole service up doing communion together. And you're going to come take communion. Some of you, for the first time ever, you're going to take communion as a, as a child of God. I love that. I love that. Let me pray for you, okay? Lord, I thank you for what, what you're doing in these lives right now. I thank you, God, for how you have come in this place today. And you have, without a doubt, you have shown us your power to open things. This is the message that we're going to take to the world for sure. But today, you've brought that message to these five or six and another five or six in the first service, God. And we thank you that you are opening our hearts, God to an incredible life and future with you. And I thank you for the salvation that you worked for us on the cross, that our sins are forgiven because of what you did, and that when you, when you busted out of the tomb, it was like God just stamping his approval on everything you had done. The, the resurrection, that open tomb, we don't ever have to wonder what does it mean. It means that everything you did for us is done. We can't add anything to it. And so we just thank you right now for these that have stood, those that raised their hands. 
God, for some of them, this is a brand new moment in their lives. They've never decided to follow Jesus. For some of them, God, it's, it's just a continuation of what they're already doing. And they're, they're just in a moment where they know they have to respond to you. And I just thank you, God, that they did. And we give you praise, God, for that. And we honor you and your work in their hearts. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen.